This is Alex. And this is James. And you're listening to the American Toffee Podcast. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. I'm James, as always, joined by my co-host, Alex. What is up? And we are back from the international break, folks. We have Premier League soccer back on the horizon. And so today we are going to touch on some news bits that came out over the past week and then um, you know, do an international roundup, talk about some news stories. And then we have a match preview of the Norwich match on Saturday with none other than the Athletics' Patty Boyland. But let's kick things off with an international roundup, and I'll throw it to Alex for that. Yes, yeah, so let's start things off hot and spicy real quick. So Moise Ken scored twice for Italy U21 against Armenia. It's obviously nice to see him scoring some goals. We have yet to see him do his uh, famous goal celebration in Everton kit. I tried to find a gif of it the other day and then realized I could only post ones with him in a Juventus shirt. So hopefully that sparks a little bit of confidence, helps him feel like he's getting into a little bit of rhythm and ready for some more Premier League minutes. Yeah. And I just want to add as a note to that, I agree with everything you said. Those Italy kits, pretty awesome. I really, really like that like dark green with the collar. Looked really classy. And Keen hitting the hitting the woe after scoring is always a good sight to see. Hopefully we'll see it in a blue shirt soon. Um, in other news, Gilfie Sigurdsson scored for Iceland. Rich Arlison played for Brazil as a striker at the nine, which he's on record as saying is his favorite position, which we know doesn't seem to play out for Everton, though he does perform well. Furthermore, Luca Dean had a couple appearances for France. Alex Awobi scored for Nigeria. And in potential breakthrough news, Anthony Gordon scored twice in two matches for the U19. So a pretty solid international break all around for the Toffees. Yes. I mean, goals are always a good thing, specifically some of the names that we see. Alex Awobi, we need him to continue to uh, kind of work himself back into form. He started off pretty hot with Everton. Anthony Gordon, I think everyone is super excited about him. We actually saw him make the 18. He made the bench against Southampton. That was really only due to the fact that Moyes Ken was dropped from the 18. But nonetheless, scoring two more goals and two matches for the England U19s over the break has got to be really good news for him. And then Sigurdsson, I don't think I need to tell anyone that he also, like Alex Iwobi, needs to work himself back into form. So it's a really positive international break, I believe. There are no reports of fresh injuries, which is always really, really good because we, uh, we've we had some sort of negative history in the past couple of years with international breaks and injuries. Yeah. And just to circle back to the Anthony Gordon thing, I mean, two really, really nice goals that he scored. And it's always positive coming out, having none of our players pick up any kind of nagging injuries or things that will prevent them from appearing. Because we've got enough of them just appearing naturally through the course of the league season, so we don't need these breaks to be contributing to that anymore. With that said, we're going to move on to a couple news bits. This one, one of I really kind of hate this story, but we really do need to talk about it. And it's the Moise Keen story, his father's comments. It's not even a story, really. His dad, who, let's be clear, he's not close with. I don't believe that he's a significant part of his life. But when you're the father of a player that's on a global stage and is in the spotlight for his country and now playing in the most watched league in the world, you attract some attention. And so he went on an Italian sport radio program and said this regarding Moise Keane's transfer to Everton. Sending my son to England was a mistake because he's still too young. He's not feeling good at Everton. I didn't like this transfer. I hope he can come back to Italy as soon as possible. 
I hope he goes to Rome, but the important thing is that he comes back here. I just hate this because like it has nothing to do with the player. The player didn't set, say anything. He did eventually, of course, respond, but just when the story broke, it just started this torrent of people commenting on Moise Keen. Oh, is he somehow unhappy at Everton? Is he going to leave in January? Is he going to go back to the Serie A? What's going to happen with him? And it's just the type of speculation that does no one any good getting ourselves all worked up for what amounts to basically nothing. And it's just really frustrating because the players do see these types of comments from fans. And we know that Everton fans can be particularly uh, impatient with players, let's put it that way, especially young players who we want to see achieve what we know they're capable of very quickly. So this one was just kind of frustrating for me overall. I don't know. What do you think, Alex? Same here. I thought it was very annoying, but also kind of just offhandish in terms of just why even make the comments. But nonetheless, I mean, fans across social media made sure to point out the fact that he doesn't really have a relationship with his father. They're not tight. If you remember the big thing with Marcel Brands handing his mother a kit and saying that we're going to take care of your son and everyone was like, oh, that's amazing. You know, realize that the dad was not there. So, you know, obviously I think most people believe the fact that he doesn't have a great relationship. And then uh, he answers with, don't talk about my life when yours is not an example. I don't fear the hard times when the best comes after them. Uh, Obviously that's a rough Google translation, but nonetheless, I mean, it's unsettling for fans because we all want to see him do really well. But I want to say over the summer, James, you and I talked about it. We knew that he wasn't really going to get started, get in the groove, be racking up a whole lot of minutes until at least this point in the season. And that's just natural. I mean, he's 19 years old. He's learning the language just like Richarlison and Yeri Mina still are. I mean, he's he's with new teammates. He's in a new country, completely different climate. So I'm personally not concerned. It seems like he knows, you know, he needs to keep working hard and and he was able to score twice with the U21s while on break. So that that's always positive for him and for us. And hopefully he continues that. Yeah. And I like this response that he had. It was posted to his Instagram story. Let's be clear. This isn't like a interview or anything that he gave. He posted it directly to Instagram, which I think is a, is a powerful statement from him. And it shows that he isn't afraid of conflict. He isn't afraid of you know working hard to try to get through adversity and fight through it. And I think as a young player, that's something that's a common theme. And the players who are able to overcome the difficulties are the ones that become great. And so I think this just, just shows that he does have the right attitude, which despite his issues with being on time to certain meetings, it does seem that he does have the right mentality as far as knowing what he needs to do to get to the level that he wants to get to. And, and one thing that we don't talk about, or I, it has been talked about, but I wanted to touch on is that Marco Silva is known as a really good man manager. I think that's his the, the tactics and everything we talk about relentlessly, but every player that's that's said anything about him, and, and it's unlikely that players would speak negatively about him, especially when they're playing for him, but have said that he's an unbelievably relatable figure, that he gives players good advice, that he has a good dialogue with the players. He can be, a, he was a father figure to Richarlison, as he said himself. And so those types of relationships with young players are crucial. And I don't think that, and even though Keaton isn't getting minutes on a regular basis, I still think that behind closed doors, there's a lot of positive dialogue going on and putting him in the right frame of mind to be successful this season, whether it's you know, at the weekend, next weekend, when he has his chance, he's got to be ready to take it. And I think that Marco Silva and the staff in general will be equipping him to do that. Yes. Well said and good point. I wasn't even thinking about it, but you're, you're absolutely right. I believe 
actually on the athletic, I, I don't remember, uh, which of the writers on the athletic, um, created the piece, but there was a piece and, and they, Oh, it was, I think it was, uh, O'Keefe, Greg O'Keefe, but he interviewed actually Davy Klassen. And where I'm going with this is Davy Klassen actually mentioned that he thought Marco Silva was really nice. You know, he'd see him and, and Marco Silva would ask him how he's doing and that sort of thing. So, you know, a player that was on his way out immediately and, and never really got a fair shot at Everton, maybe arguably, I guess was still speaking highly of him with nothing to lose. And, and, you know, it's a good thing. And you can see that the players really like him too. I mean, you can see that they're, they're fighting for him and they're trying to work through the kinks and that's what matters. But speaking of working through kinks, James, we know that we've had quite a few issues with VAR. We've talked about how many points we have missed out on based on very weird calls or non-calls using VAR. And it broke last week that Everton officially wrote a letter to the Premier League about their concerns over VAR. Um, Manchester City, Brighton, and Aston Villa have also written formally to the Premier League over their concerns with VAR. Do you think that's a that's a positive step for us as a club in general? Well, I think there was also a meeting of all the Premier League owners and, the, and I think the P-Mall, and they've come together and they've sort of hashed out and everyone's aired their grievances as to what the issues are with the VAR and the implementation and all of the improvements that are still yet to be made. And I do think that Everton will have voiced those concerns appropriately and they're valid concerns. And so when you have something that's legitimate, I think the correct parties need to take that into account and listen. So the four clubs that did write the letter, um, or I don't know if they're all separate letters or if they all wrote like one and all signed it, but I assume they all wrote their own. They are all the ones that have been most slighted by the VAR implementation. So it's understandable that they would then uh, take the issue, be, be more vocal about a vocal opposition to the issue, so to speak. And I do think that the Premier League and everyone associated with it is committed to getting this right. It's clear that it's not right right now. Um, one thing I did want to touch on was that one guy on Twitter who, um, a Liverpool fan who took the time to listen to our show and then tweet us and say that... Um, a, a picture of like what the points difference would be if it weren't if VAR were like accurate and had made the right decision. And he was somehow like really, really slighted or offended by the fact that we've been saying that Everton should be fourth and in reality we'd be eighth. So from now on, I just want to start like saying that we would be in first place if it weren't for VAR, um, if VAR was accurate. So if, if Everton be top of the league, if VAR was right. Um, but <laughs> I digress there for me. It's just, I think everyone's committed to getting it right. It's going to be a process and it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. And I think we're they're taking the appropriate steps along as, as far as, as much as they can change with the time that they've been given. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, James, listen, all I know is my mama told me since I was young, if you ain't got haters, you ain't doing nothing. <laughs> Facts. So what I have to say is opposition fans can continue to send us fan mail and we'll We'll, we'll oblige. And keep listening, please. We need the downloads. <laughs> Honestly. So nonetheless. <laughs> but no, just, just into- one more, I just pictured the guy like, <clears throat> and I can't imagine there's many Liverpool fans that listen to the show, but I just imagine him listening like on his drive to work, drinking a coffee with just this like scowl on his face, like so upset that we like misrepresented this hypothetical scenario on the show where we say stuff wrong all the time and it literally matters to nobody. Nobody cares, but this poor guy just felt the need to like express that disdain and and anger. So I just thought that was funny, but let's move on. So let's jump into a little more of a serious piece before we then subsequently get onto the Norwich match preview with Patty. So let's talk about some statistics. Uh, Part of these were, were picked from, 
a stats bomb article written by Matt, Mike Goldman. Otherwise, um, there's one essentially, it kind of popped up on a graphic itself, but nonetheless, opening it up, apparently Everton are fifth in Europe's top five leagues for fewest shots faced. I'll follow that up by saying we are second in the Premier League on a per match basis, only essentially one shot behind Manchester City. They have it about seven and a half and we have somewhere around eight and a half shots faced per match. I think that shows that our press is working and it it helps us a lot out of possession in terms of being able to badger the opponent when they have the ball and into making essentially mistakes or, or, or poor judgment calls. And it's also positive because it shows maybe our midfield is pretty decent at, at limiting chances. I mean, your midfield is really the anchor that protects your back line, but also transitions into attack and joins attack at different periods of play. And we know that, for example, Gareth Barry was extremely good at shielding the back line. Now, obviously, we have to give plaudits to the back line as well because, um, you know, they do quite a bit. They've, they've been in good form in general. All three center backs, you know, the fullbacks have been pretty good as well in terms of tackles and aerial duels one and that sort of thing too, which all contribute to the fact that we're, we're facing less shots. Um, but but it, it just it, it's a surprising statistic when you look at how our season has turned out this, thus far. Yeah, and in addition to that, what's interesting about that statistic is though we do concede the f- fifth fewest fewest shots in Europe's top five leagues, our expected goals from shots conceded is like almost one. So while we're conceding very few shots, the shots we're conceding are basically like guaranteed goals. And that kind of plays out, right? Like of all the all the mediocre, I shouldn't say mediocre, all of the games that we felt we should have won the season that we've lost have been because we've largely dominated the match and yet conceded one or two chances and and then subsequently conceded goals from those one or two chances. And that goes back to like the press, right? When you're pressing high, you leave yourself very exposed. And though we've been really good at defending from open play, the chances we're giving up just are, are too good. Um, so it's kind of like you got to find that balance where you're, you know, you can, if you're conceding shots from 30 yards out or 20 yards out, um, those are obviously very low percentage. Whereas if you're conceding shots inside your six yard box, um, those have a high likelihood of going in. So I think, you know, if we were to concede more goals, more shots, but, but give up less goals, like that's a trade off that I'm totally willing to accept rather than have this like stalwart back line that is locking things down the entire match only to give up prime chances and goals that really just we shouldn't be allowing. Um, so, so it's about finding that that sort of like balance point where the two two points like on the graph, you know, meet, and then you have that perfect perfect defense in an ideal world. Yeah, and and we all know, right? Statistics don't mean anything without context, right? And furthermore, statistics can never tell you the whole story a hundred percent. They just cannot. So, you know, all of these can be taken with a grain of salt, but they're very interesting. Another one specifically, conversely, in the Premier League, we are mustering the sixth most shots per match, which is interesting because, you know, our whole issue really with with the season has been goals, right? We're not scoring enough goals. I want to see between our top three scorers, which are Calvert-Lewin, Richarlison, and Bernard... I think it's three goals, three goals, and two goals. So literally eight goals between our top three scorers in the Premier League. It's been an issue. Yet apparently, we are creating enough ta- ch- enough chances to some degree to have the sixth most shots per match in the PL. Yeah, and again, it's like this just kind of reflects what we've all seen is that we are capable of creating a ton of shots and we do create shots against what theoretically in games that we theoretically should have won or should win. But it's then the finishing, the actual quality of the chances that you're taking. It's 
all well and good to get 20 shots a match, but if you're only putting five on target, is that really a, a good return? So it's like I'd, I'd almost prefer that we have the fewest shots, but like the highest XG and that we're, we're burying a high percentage of our looks. What it does bode well for is the future because we're definitely underperforming as far as XG. So the, the theory would be that if you believe in the statistics and you believe in the math that over time, over the course of the season, that our goal return would would steadily increase to reflect the number of chances that we're actually creating. And I do kind of expect that to start to start to play out, despite the fact that there's the potential for the season to go dramatically south very quickly if we can't maintain some degree of form through the winter fixtures. That's very true. And you know, I'm not going to go over the the exact numbers, but we are actually underperforming our expected goals scored by a handful of goals. And we are overperforming our expected goals allowed by another handful of goals. So, so that leaves us actually at sixth in the Premier League for expected goal differential. Now, obviously, it's all within context. I mean, expected goal differential doesn't mean anything when you're not playing out the way that you're expected to. Furthermore, expected goal differential, you know, having us as sixth in the Premier League, that doesn't necessarily equate to the fact that maybe we could say we should be sixth in the league in terms of physically in the table, sixth place, because, you know, goals scored, goals conceded, they can they can happen in different ways in which you might not amass as many points as you prefer. Either way, though, I, I really felt like all of these statistics make for a pretty decent reading when, you know, this season so far sitting in 15th place, all the Everton fans across the world are just feeling very underwhelmed and, and feeling like it's another season lost. Yeah, and for those feeling that way, I would just say simply take a look at the table right now. I mean, it's ridiculously congested. We we are in 15th place on 14 points, and yet we're one we're 3 points off of 5th place. All right, time for our Norwich match preview coming up this weekend. James and I are joined by none other than Patty Boylan from The Athletic. Patty, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Always always good to talk to you guys about Everton. So as we know, moving into the match, we are in 15th place. Norwich sit in 20th. This is a must win for Everton. If any game was a must win, I feel like we've been saying that literally every single week. But this is indeed off the back of the international break with the turmoil that is the Premier League and and VAR and all the issues that we've been having thus far. We need to take all three points at Goodison Park against Norwich. James, how are you feeling about the matchup? Just looking at it at face value, it's hard not to feel somewhat confident. You know, Norwich are have, have played really poorly, frankly, throughout most of the season. Winless in their last seven. They haven't won since the upset vid- uh, victory over Manchester City. Last six Everton, last six times Everton have played Norwich. Three wins, two draws, and one loss. Of course, that dates back from 2016 being the last time we played them. And those six fixtures go back all the way to 2013. And on top of that, 538 uh, statistical analysis website, they do you know politics and sports and whatnot. Pinned this as our most favorable matchup of the entire season. I believe we're like 84% chance favored to come out with all three points. And when all the factors point towards a clear Everton victory, we tend to find ways to just let it all go to crap. And so I do feel confident Marco Silva will be feeling the pressure. This is a win he needs, I think, to keep his job. If it goes south in any sense, he's going to 
really, really be on the ropes. And so I think I feel good, but at the same time, coming off that back of an international break, we're never quite sure exactly how much momentum we'll carry over and whether it's a fresh start or we're going to kind of revert to what we've seen thus far. So what do you think, Patty? How are you feeling going into the match? I think the last point is actually a really interesting one to to pick up on because you, you look at what Everton did before the international break kicked in and slowly but surely a sense of momentum had developed. That, that, was, that momentum was slightly curtailed by the VAR histrionics at Brighton, of course, but on, on the whole, Everton Everton looked better. They, they looked smoother in possession, looked a little bit more secure defensively. And some of the problems that had kind of reared the head at the start of the season seemed to have, have been solved by, by kind of tactical switches and, and by bringing in the likes of, say, a, a Tom Davis or, or a Mason Holgate. So you do wonder whether... The, the break might have stymied the, the form of a of a Davis or a Holgate or or one of those players that had been on the periphery. I guess the other way to look at it though is that while Everton traditionally tend to slip up in these kinds of games, Norwich does appear on on, on the face of it to be a pretty decent matchup, as you've already alluded to. Not only are they low down on the table, rooted to the foot of the table, but they're also, I think, a side who diverge a little bit from the rest of the the relegation fodder in the Premier League. Most sides down there will come to Goodison and and sit in and in that low block and look to deprive space. And, and Everton haven't been able to find creative solutions to those issues. But I don't think Norwich are likely to do that at Goodison on Saturday. In, in fact, they, they they tend to be proactive to, to press from the front and look to force the opposition into errors. So uh, Everton... Being a side that thrive in possession and um, and being a side that thrive with space in behind, I think I think all all roads kind of point to this being a, a decent kind of confrontation to, for Everton to have more or less the perfect confrontation to, for Everton to have after the international break. Um, and you are of course right to give this the big build up because Silver himself um, is about to enter into a very very tricky run of fixtures, the the trickiest in the league over the the next five games statistically. So it is must win. Um, It does feel as though we lurch from one Groundhog Day to the next, but I would be relatively confident of of Everton getting over the line in this one. Yes, really well said, both of you. Unfortunately, it's always the hope that kills as an Evertonian, but I'd like to think that if there's any fixture that we could feel pretty good about, it's this one. And you made a really good point, Patty, about how they, they actually, in all credit to Norwich, they do play pretty expansive open-minded sort of uh, soccer in terms of the fact that they do indeed press to try to force the opposition to make errors, which if you go check out the highlights from their match against Watford before the international break, they did just that. They just weren't able to capitalize. They've been setting up in like a 4-5-1 formation. Obviously, that's always subjective. You could call it a number of different things, whether they're in or out of possession. So, and the interesting thing about being in possession, Norwich being in possession is the fact that I noticed that they kind of Timu Puki obviously posts up against the back line, but they normally have one of their central midfielders also do the same thing. So they kind of keep with, but they have pressure, generally speaking, on both center backs, while they also have wider players kind of running at at, at your fullbacks. And so it, it's going to be tricky. And, and I think that we are going to be okay and, and be able to deal with it. But I do think that we might see a couple of defensive errors based on the press and how they kind of set up even uh, in possession. Well, that, that, that's absolutely possible, of course. But I think at, at, at this moment in time, Everton are slightly better equipped to deal with with those kinds of issues 
since the, the reintroduction of Mason Holgate into the side. Not only does Holgate give you that extra recovery pace alongside Yerry Mina, which I, which I think is much needed, but he's also better on the ball and likes to step out too. So that there may be a higher risk of Everton making errors, but I think with the current personnel and Jibril Sidibe at right back as well, I think they are better suited to, to kind of navigating those issues. And then once the ball gets into midfield, then the, the space tends to open up and, and Everton do have players, like we've said, who can who can exploit the, the the kind of the gaps in between the lines. I think with Tom Davis in there, they they tend to move the ball a bit quicker through the thirds, um, and that helps Alex Awobi as a number ten. It helps Richarlison and, and Theo Walcott on on either side of the uh, on either side of the pitch, uh, and then we can have a mobile striker up front in a, in a Calvert Lewin or Moise Kane if if we want to. So the, the, there is an avenue to goal here for Everton. There's a there's, there's quite obvious avenue to goal. And I think that's one of the, the other things about facing Norwich. You, you know you will get chances. Um, and if Everton are clinical enough, and sometimes they haven't been clinical enough this season, but if they're clinical enough, you, you get the sense that they have goals here for them if, if they're willing to take their chances. Yeah, the goals are definitely there for the taking. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for Norwich and their commitment to playing and sticking to their philosophy through thick and thin. But at some point, you know, it becomes borderline suicidal when you don't have the the personnel to necessarily beat teams consistently playing that style and yet you insist on sticking to it. Although had they not had they not stuck to that philosophy, they likely wouldn't have come away with the victory against Manchester City because they had some really, really nice interchanges that led to some really good um, breaking of the press and creating some really effective chances. But I do agree. Obviously, we know that we tend to play better against theoretically better teams, but it's really the teams that want to play more open. So you combine... Norwich's tendency to play more open with perhaps an inferior squad quality, no disrespect intended there. Um, it, it Again, all signs point to a really strong result for Everton. And I think it's exactly the type of morale booster that we need prior to the just ridiculous December that we have staring us down as we speak. Okay. So gentlemen, let's jump into how we would prefer Everton to, to set up. Uh, Patty, you kind of hit on it and you mentioned Sidibe and Holgate, I'm assuming when you mentioned them, you, you were alluding to the fact that you believe they should retain their place in defense. Yeah, I, d- I do. I, I think Everton have a, have a quicker defense at the moment, a, a defense that's better suited to taking on the, the league's kind of speed merchants. But Sidibe and, and Holgate have that bit of extra pace, uh, the quicker across the ground. But I think also that they give you a little bit more in possession. That's key. If you're, if you're Mason Holgate and you're bringing the ball out. But I think it's, it's also key when you look at, for example, Jabril Sidibe's role in Everton's winner against Southampton. Mm. That kind of cross and that kind of extra quality is something we haven't seen from, from Seamus Coleman over the last kind of six to 12 months. Um, for all Coleman's strengths and, and virtues, I, I think he's kind of a head down and kind of burst past his, his opposite man rather than looking to whip in the early cross. And... Uh, it's so important for me, I think, when you look at the Premier League and look at the teams that are thriving in the Premier League, a lot of them have what I would consider to be kind of auxiliary playmakers at fullback, guys that get kind of eight to ten, even even more assists over over the course of a single campaign. And that's just because teams saturate the middle and they force you wide and your, your fullbacks are the ones that get the majority of the ball these days. If you look at kind of any touch maps, it, it tends to be a, a Luca Dean or a, a Jabril Sidibe touching the ball more than 
than a Tom Davis or even, say, Andre Gomez, for example, when, when Gomez was in the side. So the importance of Everton having those kind of those creative fullbacks and those fullbacks that are comfortable in possession, I think, is is there for all to see. Sadiq Bey's played a huge role in that. And the other thing about this is that before Everton were largely attacking down the, the left-hand side, and the opposition knew that if you shut down Luca Dean as a creative outlet, you kind of shut down Everton. Now, with Sadiq in the side, there's another thing for them to think about. The, the, it's a kind of a dual threat on either side of the pitch. And you also have the introduction of Alex Awobi as, as a number 10, who I think is he's much more suited to this kind of fluid style, this, this 4-3-3 that Silva ultimately would like to play. Um, and, and that means that Everton can attack in a multiple of different ways, uh, in multiple different areas of the pitch as well. Um, much more difficult to defend against, of course, <laughs> as a result. So Sadibe's made a huge difference. Holgate has made a huge difference. And Alex Awobi as a number 10 has made a huge difference as well. And, and Tom Davis is moving the ball quicker through the third. So so like I said, it, it, it kind of feels as though we've we've started to find some solutions, not just to kind of recurring problems, but also maybe things that will help Everton specifically for this game against Norwich on Saturday. Totally agree. And I think on the on the point of Jabril Sidibe, Seamus Coleman is a is a good right back in the sense where he likes to get forward, but his end product has been severely lacking. And I think what we saw in our last match with that cross from Sidibe is that he does have that in his locker that he can pull that out and, and create in, like you said, Patty, the way that the modern game dictates that fullbacks need to play in order to, to be successful as a team. So I think both Sidibe and Holgate keep their place. Michael Keane will have to continue to watch from the bench for the time being until he can force his way back in. Um, Seamus Coleman, I'm sure, I mean, with the the fixtures coming thick and fast, we, we will see significantly more squad rotation. We also, you know, it's nice that we're stumbling on these solutions, seemingly despite the just relentless injury bug that seems to be hitting us this season. Um, and so you mentioned Tom Davis and Alex Awobi retaining their place in the midfield. Have we heard the latest on Fabian Delph? Has he passed the fitness test ahead of the weekend? I think we would expect him to to be back fit and ready to go for this one. Um, it was kind of touch and go whether he was going to be risked at Southampton. I think in the end, a decision was taken that, okay, we'll try and get through to the international break. And then let's reassess from there. So the I think the early indications are that he should be fit. Um, Marco Silva is speaking to the media and myself included on mm. on Friday. So so we'll get an, an update on Fabian Delph and and his participation there. I I, I my guess is he plays. Um, my guess is that he's fit to play. And then that's the dilemma in in the centre of the park. Do you, do you go with um, do you go with Fabian Delph or do you go with Morgan Schneidlin alongside Tom Davis? who probably now becomes the the mainstay in that midfield in, in the absence of, of Andre Gomez. I think Davis's performances have merited that. Again, he's somebody that's given Everton a different dimension because he's progressive and he looks to break the lines with his passing and, and with his dribbling. Those are things that Everton have needed for an awfully long time in the centre of the pitch, um, particularly when they've, they've had two holding midfielders who kind of go side to side more or less with their passing. So... Uh, you would assume Delph, if Fick comes back in, then the one headache, and I'd like to hear what you guys have to think uh, have to say about this. The the one potential sele- selection dilemma is at the top end of the pitch, and mm. I think Richarlison obviously plays, but it's a question mark as to, as to where he plays. Theo Walcott probably keeps his place because this is a meritocracy, and and he deserves to do so. Alex Awobi, you w- you would expect comes back in. 
and then that fourth player in the the, the attacking quartet is is the one that's open for discussion. Is it if Richarlison plays from through from the left, then then it's Jenk Tosin, Moise Kane, or or um, or Dominic Calvert-Lewin. If if Richarlison plays from the left, uh, from the, from the centre, sorry, then you you look to bring in a, an extra midfielder. I think that's the intriguing thing this weekend. What what does Silva do at the top end of the pitch, and how best are Everton suited to taking on this Norwich side that will leave gaps to exploit? Listen, I think. I think he's going to go with Richarlison on the left and Walcott on the right. As you said, Walcott deserves to continue to keep his place because he's been in very good form, I would say, in the last month, relatively speaking. Richarlison actually got man of the match, I believe, against Southampton on the left-hand side. Obviously, he scored that um, nice volley winner for two to make it 2-1 against Southampton. Again, he's always looked far more dangerous and more involved. That's the key piece. More involved on the left-hand side, being able to link up with Luca Dean and be able to cut in on his favorite right foot. And so with that, that leaves the striker position, as you said. I actually personally, even I personally was disappointed with how Jenk Tosin kind of showed up um, for the last match, or let me, let me rephrase that, showed out for the last match. I, I wasn't impressed with his passing, actually. I thought it was far less crisp than it usually is in terms of being able to even just complete a couple of passes in the final third. Uh, his hold-up play wasn't perfect, although I, I know Vestergaard is a monster at, I think, like six foot five or six foot some, seven, something ridiculous. So I, I understand there are challenges. Uh, with that, I think it has to be Dominic Calvert-Lewin that stops, starts up top. I was surprised that he didn't start against Southampton because he was been in good form for Everton. He started scoring goals finally, which is what everyone was asking for. And all of a sudden he was dropped. Uh, so I think it's got to be Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Um, Moise Ken, obviously a good shout, but when he came on, when he played on the right wing, I think in the uh, Carabao Cup, it was not good. He was substituted at halftime. Uh, he had a pretty good international break, which we'll touch on, but I think that it's got to be Dominic Calvert-Lewin. For me, I think this is a really, really good opportunity to show faith in Moise Keen. Um, we know that he struggled to force his way into the conversation. We know the issues he's had with punctuality. But coming off of an international break in which he scored two goals, I really and, – and again, this is the type of match where it's going to be very open. He can use his explosiveness. He can use his pace. I think after all of the turmoil and the tabloid headlines about his dad and all of those things, it would be a good show of faith for Marco Silva if he did give him the start. That said, um, I, I still think he'll play it safe and go with Calvert-Lewin, who has been the most productive of all of our striking options thus far this year. And he also offers pace and explosiveness and has shown, you know, a knack for scoring goals this season. So while my heart says Keen, my head says Calvert-Lewin. Where do you land on it, Patty? I, I'm actually in the in the camp that thinks that Dominic Calvert-Lewin gets a little bit of an unfair ride in, in some quarters from Evertonians. He, he's being labeled as, as this guy that works hard. And yes, of course he does. But a guy that works hard and doesn't really have a clinical edge in front of goal. But, but I actually think for... A 22-year-old as he is, he's he's kind of remarkably well developed in in other areas of his game, and the finishing instinct is slowly but surely coming to fruition. So, I mean, even going back to last season where he he ended up with that tag, there was a lovely goal away to Cardiff where he, he took the ball and and curled the ball into into the far corner. Uh, I, th- I thought that was a great goal. He's good with his head uh, and scores a lot of goals with his head proportionally. And this season, there have been some good finishes from him as well, notably in the in the Carabao Cup clash away at Sheffield Wednesday. So for, for, for me, I still think he's improving all the time. I, I think there's a lot of potential there. 
for, for this game, I, I kind of tend to agree with what both of you are saying about Richarlison. Uh, the game against Southampton, I think, was probably his most dangerous so far this season on the left. It's where he looked kind of most at home. Um, and I, I think he does like the the extra responsibility of Everton, of driving Everton forward from that position and taking advantage of, of kind of his, those late runs into the box. So Richarlison should probably start there. Walcott, as I say, on the other side. Awobi is my number 10. I think he should be Marco Silva's number 10 moving forward. And I'd probably go Dominic Calvert-Lewin with Moise Keane off the bench when things get even more stretched uh, late on. Um, There is room for sentiment here. And I think we do need to make sure that Moise Keane gets enough minutes to adapt to the Premier League. That's absolutely crucial. And I think he also needs to get minutes um, in his favoured position at the kind of in a central part of, of the pitch. I don't I don't think he's a right winger. Um, so to see him come off the bench and to, to be afforded an opportunity to build on the um, the confidence-boosting goals he scored for, for Italy under-21s in, in the uh, international break, I think would be a good show of faith, as, as, as one of you put it um, earlier on, from, from Silva to Moise Kane. That, that, they're kind of quite decent options. And there's Jenk Tosin as well, who's kind of flittering around and getting games here or there. I actually think Jen Tosin at this moment in time of Everton's central striking options is probably the most reliable finisher. I think if you gave them all 10 chances, he'd be the one that would score the most. Um, but the flip side of that coin is that he's probably least suited to a Marco Silva setup. When you when you look at his all-round game, a lack of pace, inability to hold the ball up in, in tight areas, um, he doesn't seem to me to be the guy you would turn to in, in most of these games. He's, he's kind of a, a game-breaker off the bench, potentially. And even at Southampton, I, I could see Tom Davis in his leadership role in the centre of the park now, as, as he's assumed. He was kind of gesticulating all the time at, at Jenk Tosin to, to make those runs forward, to continue to press the ball. And Tosin struggled a little bit with that physically. So maybe he's a bench option, like Moise Kane. Uh, I think probably Calvert-Lewin is the man that gets the nod and the man that gets the nod over the next kind of month or so, given that Everton have got games against tough opposition. Um, looking back to last season, it was um, during the latter part of the season that Calvert-Lewin really started to kind of find his groove. And it has to be remembered that Silva came up with a solution to to beating those sides, particularly at Goodison. And Calvert-Lewin was a big part of that kind of playing a pretty thankless and selfless role up front. So, um, I, I think we'll see a lot of Calvert-Lewin over this period, but they will all have a role to play to one degree or another. Yes, well said. And you know what? The other the other thought, you mentioned that maybe Moyes Ken could, could come off the bench when things are even more open towards the end of the match. This would probably play in his favor, uh, specifically the way that Norwich set up, and, and even, especially if they are uh, behind, because, you know, he would have the space to run in behind, and he would have the space to try and play some simple link-up passes in the final third and all of those things all of those small things attribute to building confidence and, and building belief in yourself specifically in this new league with your new teammates and so that I think that would be a really positive thing to see and, and hopefully we do see it I mean obviously every single one of us want to see him attaining minutes uh, it's just kind of a, a debate as to whether or not he should or should not start but nonetheless gents let's round this segment out with score predictions James I'll let you go first for me I do think we come away with the win. I think that we ideally will take the lead very early and then sort of maintain control of the game throughout. My prediction is going to be a 3-1 win to Everton. It's, it's curious, actually, isn't it? Because I was, I was just looking at a few stats ahead of the game. 
and Everton have lost their last two games against newly promoted sides, Aston Villa and, and Sheffield United. So the record is not good, but we've we've all mapped out how stylistically and tactically um, Norwich City are different to those other sides that are down at the bottom of the table. I think it's a matchup that suits Everton, and I think it's one that Everton should do well in. So I, I think Everton will come away with a relatively comfortable 2-0 win here. You know what, Patty? You stole my scoreline. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. So, so here's what I'll do. It. We can both go for it. No, yeah. we can't. I share nothing with anyone. Uh, here's what I'll do. I'll be slightly a Debbie Downer. I do believe we'll win. I do believe we're going to score at least a couple goals. And so I will go a 2-1 victory. Um, on the flip side, Norwich, it's going to be Timu Puki continuing the Puki party in the <laughs> Premier League. Um, but, you know, we can celebrate because we'll still win. Of course. Thank you so much to Patty for joining us. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic, definitely do that because he is writing some fantastic long-form articles and they've got all your sports covered. So anything that you could possibly want, really, really well-written, thoughtful pieces about The Athletic's your spot to go. So definitely check it out. As for us, give us a follow on Twitter as usual. Join our Discord as usual. And we will be with you guys at the weekend to give you guys a post-match reaction. Till next time, up the toffees. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at USA Toffee Pod to stay up to date on the latest episode releases and Everton news. And we'll see you guys next time.